You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Land and Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. We're coming to you with another Habitat-focused podcast right here on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. We're kind of keeping with the trend that we started last week. It was uh, We had a lot of great feedback, a lot of great um, interactions with people um, discussing food plot failures. So to take that one step further, this week we're going to discuss... Common land management failures and the things not to do as you're setting up a farm, managing a farm and a property... Things that we see as we travel across the country to different properties, things that we commonly take notice of, and things that you definitely want to avoid to avoid problems, um, huge costs down the road, and time-saving techniques, basically. So we're going to cover that today. Time-saving and also money-saving. There's a lot of techniques out there that are just... uh... Money pits. Did you say that? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was I was focused on our uh, settings over here. I was like, and uh, man, <laughs> is is there a mirror yeah. in the room? It's an echo. Yeah, echo. An echo. Not Visual. a mirror. Well, I'm I'm looking at the camera and mirror. Yeah. Okay. So all right. Just so you guys know, we are now. Uh, if you can't tell, we're a little bit sleep deprived. We've been grinding, and today was one of the worst. Um, butt kickings we have had turkey hunting Uh, yeah we heard three gobbles from the same bird before he pitched down and we didn't hear anything until one o'clock and covered miles and miles and miles keith's app keith hammer from stratton seed company is up hunting with us and his co-worker taylor and his app said we covered just at eight miles Hmm. Uh, i don't know if that's true or not because i was like i don't think it was that far but you know, my legs kind of tell it certainly wasn't level. I know no, that for sure. No, we were hunting actually public ground with mm-hmm. it. Very steep, steep terrain. So uh, it was a lot of fun, but man, it was a uh, 3.45 came early oh, today. And 3.45 is going to come early again tomorrow. Yes, so it will. let's get this podcast going so we can get to bed. Ooh. So a lot of failures out there. A lot of things that we do on farms. A lot of things that we see and also have done that have been a, a failure to where looking back we say, man, I don't want to do that again and I want to help make sure nobody else makes that same mistake. 
But before we get started on that, I know Matt's got something else to talk about. Yeah, I think it's really important to talk about QDMA National Convention before we get going here on this podcast and talk about some of the the presentations that are going to be um, given during this this year's National Convention. And they're going to be great topics, um, things that I feel like over the past year, whether you follow along on social media with QDMA or just other um, Habitat managers, that Facebook group, things that are just kind of current, trendy. And the first one being on Thursday morning, we got Thursday, Friday, Saturday um, presentations. So it's Thursday, they're, they're talking about the mineral stumps. So how to increase native vegetation with fire and chainsaw. Um, Marcus Lashley from Mississippi State, he is going to be doing that presentation. I know there's going to be basically a lot of eyes and ears on him during that presentation. Um, killer hunting tactics from the Lindsay way, they're going to be down there. Non-baited camera surveys from Carl Miller. Um, Dan Perez of White Seal Properties doing big bucks on small tracks. Craig Harper, 30 Ways to Improve Your Land for Deer. He's always a always great, a great yep. presenter. Lots of information. He's going to be covering that. He's got a whole hour to cover the 30 Ways to Improve Your Land for Deer. Um, Saturday, they actually invited us back. We're going to be talking about um, edge habitat, living on the edge and, and habitat in that transition zone, how to promote that and what that will do for not only the habitat, but hunting situations as well. Um, then we got... Air guns, um, Chuck Sykes from Alabama. He is going to be talking about air guns and big game hunting, how they go together. Oh, I thought he's blackbird hunting. Blackbird hunting. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and then Jay Paul and his dad, RJ, from Swamp People, are coming later on Saturday night. So a lot of cool things, and that's just a few of them um, that we've mentioned. They've got other um, panels and I know Cuz is going to be down there, a bunch of oh, other yeah. people. So um, It's it, the 30th anniversary. Yes, it is. So they're doing it big this year. Early bird registration for that convention ends June 1. So be sure to sign up, get that rate. And there has been a change in the venue. It was at, what was it last Marriott. year? The Marriott. They're going just down the street this year to the Ritz-Carlton. So be sure to uh, hop on their website and check out the National Convention and uh, sign up. One other thing, before we before we start this whole failures on, on land management, we have added the tab on our Facebook page to allow you to leave reviews. Yeah. And I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and we haven't got a review yet. Come <laughs> on, people. We're in Sorry. here. We're in here uh, at... I don't even know. 9.30 at night doing a podcast for you guys. Come on. Please just help us out. Start leaving us some reviews on our Facebook page, and that will help encourage us to do more podcasts in the future. So if it's 9 o'clock and we're like, heck, with it. let's skip it this week. We can read a review and go, nope, we got to do it. So anyway. Before we get started on this one, too, we are filming these podcasts So this podcast, and and this is really one of the first ones that we are going to be interactively showing maps as a feature correlated with this video. So if you're listening to this podcast on the Sportsman's Nation and you're driving in your car and like, okay, cool, I understand what they're talking about, but a visual will be nice, come back to our Facebook page or YouTube page on Thursday. This podcast will be up and you will be able to see maps that we're using and talking about 
um, these specific things to avoid when you're laying out a farm. And it's just going to help provide that additional visual to uh, make things easier to learn. So we're going to do that this week. Looking forward to it. So um, again, if you need that extra clarification, look for this podcast on Facebook Thursday or on YouTube, whichever one is easiest. Adam, you ready to do this thing? Absolutely. Let's get started. I know first, first and foremost, when it comes to setting up a property, one of the biggest failures and the, the foundation of it all, um, and so by not having this is one of the biggest failures you're going to face, and that's just a plan of attack. And it's as simple or as complex as honestly you want it to be, but it, it's a matter of laying out a plan or goals and seeing it through, following through with it. You know, there's a lot of things that you can do technique-wise, willy-nilly, and you can put them here, you can put them there, the next year you can put them over here in this corner and avoid this other corner, and then you can burn over here one year and then forget about it for 10 years while you're burning the same patch for three years in a row. That's not a plan. That's just trying to go out and achieve things each year, and and you're not going to see the success that you want to even though you're actively out there working. So having a plan, sticking to it, and maybe that's getting someone to review that plan or or talking with someone um, in the area who knows the land maybe a little bit better, getting them out there. Or hiring a consultant. Yeah. Wink, wink. <laughs> who knew? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, by the way, uh, if you, in case you guys didn't know it, we actually do consulting, so... <laughs> nice plug. Yeah, you like just that. throw that, that in there. My, uh, that was my uh, little shameless. You're nonchalant, plug there. shameless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, be sure though to get a plan of attack down and then stick to it, especially if it's one that makes sense for the overall property and the goals that you have for the property. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know you were going to hand it to me. Yeah. I was going through the notes. Yeah. So that's exactly right. Um, having a plan of attack. And that goes with not only if you really, uh, we we honestly promote more really, really in-depth plan of attack. So you need to have a plan for the, for the timber on your place. You need to have an overall plan for the property. And that way you can break it down and say, okay, 10 years from now, this is what we're, this is what we're building for. And then ultimately you always want to be thinking about, okay, the next landowner, what can I be doing to to help them out. And and that, I mean, there's a lot of things we're doing now to where it's like 60 years from now, this is going to be awesome. Ideal. (laughs) It's going to be a great hunting spot 60 years from now. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. I think that some people may get overwhelmed as they start with a plan and they get into doing all this work and they forget about the the end, basically the end goals and the fact that hey there's phases to this this is going to take some time you know each growing season in a specific area is basically a set amount of growing degree days and you have that window each year to see progress and see change and then the next year or the next portion of that year you go into a dormant season and then the next year you're back in there growing and seeing things change but that takes time for things to develop and we talked about the timber. And a lot of times when we go to a property, it's this area or this unit needs to have TSI before it can even be harvested. And you might look at that harvest and say, okay, okay, I'm going to TSI that can take, you know, two months, 
Yeah, well, that that window of harvest is going to be 10 years after you do that TSI project. Yeah. So there's phases to everything. And understanding and being realistic, I think, is the most important that you can't just go in and start cutting and think that the turnaround time and, and the results are going to come very, very quickly. Yeah. Some things they will. Other things, it takes time. Um, it takes time to make wine. That's right. So understand that there's phases, and then once you get past that phases, you go into like a maintenance stage. And that maintenance stage is when basically you're sitting back and really reaping the rewards. You've done a lot of the work, and then you're just trying to maintain it and keep it at this certain level. And I think that's when we're speaking of timber plans is if you're planning a harvest, let's say that you move in and you have a long crew and they harvest – the next plan is to, okay, what's left still needs to be managed. Yes. And a, a lot of times we see it, timber gets cut, and then they leave, and all that money goes into other places of the farm. But a portion of that usually needs to be set back into managing the next the, the next go around. The next so crop go, of Going trees. back in there and either planting more trees or doing another TSI and, and cutting out the, the trees that the logger didn't see any value in because uh, once you've removed those crop trees – those other trees are going to flourish because there's less competition. So removing them, I, I automatically think of in the Ozarks here, we cut out the oaks and we leave the hickories or a lot of the hickories and they just explode. And over time, now we have a hickory dominated forest instead of an oak dominated forest. So mm-hmm. that's definitely something you need to consider um, or you're going to have a big mess on your hands in the future. Right. And not make any money. And frankly, we, when it comes to land management, we need to be improving the land for the wildlife but also, we we need to find a way to make money on it if we really want to manage it um, to its maximum potential. There's a difference between land management and land tinkering. Land tinkering is just going out there, doing a bunch of different stuff. Who cares if it makes money or well, if it doesn't? But the management aspect is, I've got a plan, I've got an idea, I've got goals, and I want to have this in return come back to me, whether that is some financial um, advantage or you're you're wanting to see bigger deer, more turkeys, more quail, or just have quail come back, whatever or, it is. Or the difference between a hobby and a business. Yeah. Business is going to make money and continue to, to invest back into mm-hmm. it and, and continue down the future while a hobby is just going to tinker and plant right. a few food plots or whatever. So that's and, the, and that's the importance of, of having a plan and understanding those goals of, okay, how can I make this? How can I make money on this? And how can I improve the habitat at the same time? Not to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but as we're talking, you were talking earlier, we've got a hunt terror map sitting right here in front of us of, of the home base, the Prairie Hollow property. And we talked about this the other day is really before we started really, really diving into this property, there were bottom fields planted and crops. And these bottom fields pulled a lot of deer and a lot of turkey into them. And since then, that area has been really, really hot and activity-wise. However, the surrounding area is close to a gravel road. And, and when we talk about timber management, drawing this back into that timber side of things, it's important for us to start here, basically where the largest food source is, to give this area the best cover. Because right now, there's open timber, or was open timber. It has already been cut kind of up and down this bottom field. So 
we had to increase this resource to give deer security because that gravel road basically splits that. And we can't change that. No. Nope. But we have a great resource here that's already in place. But as a plan, as a strategy, it was best for us to start the timber process right in this area than somewhere across the other side of the farm where, okay, if we did start the timber property, the timbering, excuse me, on the west side and not the east where the fields are, then those field, then those deer are still going to be in view. They're not going to have the proper cover to be able to hide and get away from the road and bed down because no matter what, they're still going to be there because of that food source. So in conjunction, that plan and understanding how those two things work together, we stuck with it. And now there's treetops. We're seeing as spring green is finally getting here, there's a lot of stuff greening up on the forest floor that has not been there before and that we've seen because of it was closed canopy. But now there's so much sunlight getting down there. I'm excited to see what July is going to be like in that timber because there's going to be cover in close proximity to these large fields. So that's just a small sample size of, hey, we had we had a plan. We could have started anywhere, but we started here because we needed to kind of protect this area as best as possible. Yeah. Speaking of plans, we have a plan for this podcast, so let's stick to it so we can get this done. Hey, that's a good point to make. So um, when we say not having a plan of attack, one of our biggest main emphasis on that is knowing the plan for the farm, understanding the goals, and then understanding, and this is sometimes hard for people to swallow, and especially if you're looking to buy ground, is, is your farm capable of reaching the goals that you have in mind? And if not, there's either going to have to be a change of property or a change in mindset of going, okay, maybe this isn't the Iowa caliber farm that I thought it was. Maybe I I need to settle for 130, 140 class deer or um, whatever it is. Make sure that you understand the goals of of your property and then what your property is capable of doing. Yeah, I, I think there's sometimes there's unrealistic just mindsets that someone may go into a property to try and, and buy and think, oh, well, I've got land now. I can do this. I can do X. But many times, and depending upon the size of the property, neighbors play a really big portion into that. And you might even be in a great area. You might be in Iowa. But if your neighbors don't have the same management goals of letting deer get to older age class, it's going to be much tougher for you to get to your stated goals of harvesting mature deer year in and year out. So just understanding that, understanding neighbors is something that um, I think is important to to consider when buying. And I think another big thing is keeping with that same trend is um, how often do we see a property that's mostly timber and it's like, well, I want to have big food plots. I've always wanted to have big food plots. And the amount of money it's going to take to put those in is just automatically going is it really worth it? I mean, you don't have a huge if you don't have a huge budget for the property and then you devote it all into this, then you don't maybe have enough money to actually amend the soil the way it needs, buy the appropriate seed, whatever it is. So, definitely a lot of things to consider and without a plan, you're really really going to shoot yourself in the foot. Mm-hmm. Very 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 true. Um I think the next big topic is road system establishment. And we talked about this, actually, um, at National Convention last year. We spent a pretty decent amount of time, but because it is so incredibly important 
to have an established road system throughout a property that just makes sense and is basically built well and requires little maintenance and will get you around your property with equipment or with, you know, UTV in a manner that does not disturb deer. This is the one that hurts me so much because we see a lot of fantastic properties across the country. And, and every once in a while, we'll run on one that's just amazing, amazing land, great neighborhood, but the road system is so bad that it's just, you might as well be driving it, out there honking the horn. It defeats the purpose of, of hunting strategically, basically. You're alerting deer as you're getting to and from the stand. And we're going to talk about it you know, in a few minutes, but food plot location, sanctuary placement, all this is going to tie into one another. But if it's not thought of initially, man, you can, you can really be frustrated with your hunting success for years to come. Because honestly, once a road's established, and that's the first thing that happens on a property typically, so you can then begin to, you know, harvest timber or get in and do some food plots, whatever it may be, or put in dozer lines. Man, this is this is foundation stuff. And if you get off on the wrong foot, you're only going to have you're only going to be as good as that foundation is. And it's not only just for hunting's sake, but management's sake with prescribed fire and just the way to access the property with if you establish a great road system, eventually you'll be able to hopefully uh, haul a no-till drill mm-hmm. through there and so you don't want little windy roads. I mean, how often do you get to where you those have little S turns, those little S turns, and you see a tree with a bunch of scars on it, and you just automatically know yep. the bucket of the tractor hits that, nicked it every time it goes by, or the dozer nicked it, and so it's just one of those things that having a good road system, a, a well thought out road system, will really help you long term and uh, meeting those goals and and maintaining managing that property. And one of the things that a fire break around the edge of a property or a road system around the edge, the border of your property will do two things. One, allow you to access your property very easily, maybe circle around food plots or circle around a sanctuary. And basically, if there's any pressure, you're putting on the very outside, pushing deer inward to your property because the rest of the property should be sanctuary or should be safe zone. So that's one thing. The other thing is fire breaks. If you've ever had to create fire breaks with by hand chainsaw blowers, you would know the importance and the uh, the gratitude you will have to a doze line around a property. And again, that serves two purposes: access for hunting, and then a maintenance style of um, basically just importance on the property. And that dozer line, whoo, can be can be, if you have a lot of edge to your property, can be kind of expensive. Understand that. So, but initially having that good developed road system tied in with your your borders will have great success for fire burning, basically. So, down the road. I, I'm not going to use our hunt terror map because we don't have the roads highlighted on this because we're still in the process of establishing mm-hmm. this. So, this is going to be the map that kind of shows the property at the beginning and then right. uh, over time we'll update it. So, I have this handy dandy, notice what I what I put on it. I'll show oh, you first. Not a hunt terror. Not a hunt terror. Definitely in, not the quality. Uh, don't confuse don't confuse the quality here um, between the hunt terror and then my handy dandy uh doodles marker board scratching on this uh on this little thing to show you 
um, kind of the ideal situation. Let's just, I just made a simple rectangle property to kind of give you an idea of setting up food plots and the road system we're talking about. Matt talked about a perimeter road system. You can see my little dashed lines all the way around this. That's a great fire break. But then not only do we have that, but we have a road system through the interior. But this is one thing you'll notice about this is the food plots, which I've highlighted in blue and the border's blue, but the blue blobs, there's four of them. You'll notice that these things, the road system doesn't go from one to the next to the next. It kind of meanders through in between the food plots and around the interior to where you can drive that whole interior road and never actually drive through the center of a food plot. So if you're going to hunt the northeast food plot and you're coming in from the southwest, you can drive all the way there a couple of different ways, whether you take the perimeter road or you go through the interior road, but you're not driving through the food plot. That's one of the biggest mistakes we make when we're setting up a road system and food plots is we try to keep it as cost-effective as possible. So you tell your dozer guy to make a, a road along the ridge top, and then whenever he gets to a nice little open area, make a food plot, and then just keep on going. But in the process of that, you make it to where I, I feel like I pounded this into the food or into the podcast over over time, last 61 of them, but um, I've said it in at least 50 of them that if you're hunting food plot four and you have to drive through food plot one, two, and three to get to food plot four, you haven't set it up right. You need to find a better way to where you're not disturbing those first three food plots to go hunt food and, plot four. And it's not necessarily driving to that food plot, let's say in an afternoon situation, it's coming back out. Like the deer that you want to be in that food plot for other hunts later on are either in the field already or just arriving. Or you're wanting field. to hunt a transition area in between the bedding area and food plot four. You have to drive through the other three to get there in mm -hmm. the morning yeah. situation. So it's really important that you have a road system, like you see on my hunt, not, not a hunt, hunt Terra map, um, to where the road system meanders through that it avoids. And that's kind of the one of the greatest things about our home base property is we can use not only the road system but the terrain to really hide the way we're going to maneuver through the property um, and never be seen, never going through food plots. And, and that is, as we talked about, that foundation of a road system is so incredibly important to try and mimic something like this if you're setting up a property and it's a new property. And if not, if you have the ability to manage it and develop roads that do this and avoid basically the sensitive areas. Because when you're on the property, especially during hunting season, the most you're on foot or covering ground is just before daylight or just after daylight. And that's when deer are most active. So consider that as you're moving and developing and creating a property, that road system to avoid the sensitive areas, sanctuaries, food plots is so incredibly important. That's a great diagram, Adam, by you the like way. That? I do like that. It's creative. Is, is it's ben, artistic. Is ben at Hunt Terra, should he be worried? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lots of competition with that one in there. Um, I'm going to draw on this other side while you're talking. I'm going to draw another, so a little more visual when I'm talking about the food plot one, two, and three, four. Yeah, bad diagram. So another thing to consider when you're when you're developing a road system is erosion. We we are in hilly ground. We are in erodible soil. We have rocky ground and when you have minimal topsoil 
or you have soil that will just erode easily with with hills. Well, well some of the worst erosion we've seen this year has been in country without rocks. It, some of it has Missouri. been, yeah. Um, that, that's a, a, a different story, I guess, with, with why, but does it matter because even if you had a road system that's not treated right and you're not getting water off that road and you're allowing water to run down it, creating ruts and washing out your road, bad, bad news. You're going to continue every single year, every time that the spring rains occur, you will be doing road maintenance instead of putting in food plots in a timely manner or instead of spraying when you need to be spraying, you'll be fixing your roads. So make sure even on any type of hill, a slope, that you are having water get off the road system as quickly as possible and to a location where it's not going to continue down the road, erode away. Yeah. and Huge, that- huge, huge. Huge problem, and that's not only a uh, a problem in roads, but it can get to where food plots can have be. erosion problems because we put them in areas where it's steeper terrain, and then we start plowing and disking, or we just leave the the soil bare, as in we're spraying out the vegetation and we're not allowing enough time for other things to grow back to where you have exposed soil and you get a heavy rainstorm, you get five inches of rain, and you're going to have erosion as well. So. Keeping erosion, that's one of those long-term management practices mm-hmm. where if we don't do it correctly now and we let 10 years of bad um, soil conservation practices be used, then 10 years from now we're going to say, man, that 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 hurts me now, but over time it's really going to be uh, It, it just requires bad forward thinking. For sure, yeah. Cause, and, and my gosh, it could save a lot of money down the road because you could spend a lot on gravel each and every year just to have it continue to be washed away. Hit it. I'm holding it right now, so in front of my face. But uh, okay, they appreciate so that. I'm trying to show the people uh, with my camera, the ones pointing at me. Um, you can see over here on the left, on the side, you see this little straight dashed black line, and then you see four um blobs that's representing food plots and that's kind of what we see a lot of honestly is unfortunately you see the one road that goes through and you've got four food plots and you just drive through all of them to get to to get to the top one or the bottom one and and that's a that's a definitely something we want to avoid that's the thing like you could have a great setup or a great wind to hunt a stand on this food plot and you're thinking oh my gosh it's perfect like and you might even kill that night that you hunt that one food plot all the way at the end but think of all the damage and education that you're doing on one, two, three, just to be successful in four. Yeah. If I, you put and you could have you, it's avoidable. I think it, of it's avoidable. A deer That's being a, a wild animal, and you oh we're having sticker sticker eight buck is showing up and and turnip plot or whatever it is, and that's the fourth one on the line. You're like, okay, we're going in to get him tonight. You go in there and you're like, where is he at? He didn't show up. You get in your UTV or you start walking out and you get food plot two, the wheat field, and he's standing there and he blows mm-hmm. out of there and you're like, uh-oh. And you do that very much and a lot of times that may happen and you don't even realize it. Uh, you never even see him. And you're starting to put a lot of pressure on the deer herd just by walking through it right after dark. So setting up with a good plan and road system is a huge part of long-term success. And here's one one thing that we see, especially in this area, um, because we do have a lot of terrain, we see bottom ground 
in kind of a long, they're following the floodplain and they're kind of in a long linear fashion. Um, even though it's bottom ground and even though it's an open area, it doesn't mean it has to be a food plot at all. In a hunting situation, really, I would much rather have more space between food plots than basically one little field connecting to another little field connecting to another little field. It becomes very difficult to hunt and very difficult to patter deer because they come out 200 yards away from you and there's basically three fields away and you don't even know it. Yeah. So not every opening, this transitions us right into food plot design failures, um, that portion of the podcast, but it... Every opening does not need to be a food plot, especially oh. in there in a linear fashion. Don't do that. Avoid that mistake. Or every ridge top, and just I think that's one of the biggest food plot failures that we will see is just because it looks like it should be a food plot doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be a food plot. Um, and I think of you, you brought up a great point of of uh, long linear food plots of kind of stacking them on top of each other to where you have 300 yards of food plot or even more than that. Even, it's hard to really bottleneck and pattern a deer My in one gosh. specific spot. Yeah. And that's that goes with the same question of, I have this big five-acre field. Maybe I ought to plant the whole thing. Or at this huge 10-acre field. I want to plant the whole thing. And then hunting season rolls around, and you're like, man, I can't hardly figure out how to get these deer into range you know i'm seeing these deer but this bow in my hand is getting old you're just sitting yeah. around waiting for gun season to crack one and there's ways that you can have great forage but then during hunting season it all turns to bedding and then you have a smaller food plot that or a couple of smaller food plots within I've the 10 acre area right i'd rather have a couple of two acre and less two acre or smaller food plots than several five acre plus ones just because it's so hard to bottleneck deer with big fields it's just like hunting crop fields i love seeing i love seeing deer like when i'm hunting i like i you know that's part of a success for me seeing deer in the stand that's fun but ultimately i'm out there to harvest them and if all i'm doing is seeing them in a big 10 acre field that can get old a couple sits into him like okay he's gonna come from there he's gonna stay out in the middle those are gonna come from here another you know Herd of does come from here. Cool. No. And then but, when I climb down, I'm going to spook yeah. them. I'm <laughs> going to have to howl like a coyote yeah. and blow them out. But I don't want that. That gets old. I'd rather be in the game 24-7 and know if that deer steps out that I'm after or if, if a doe steps out and I'm hunting over an acre plot or a two-acre plot, I've designed it and I have edge feathering and maybe even um, other other bottlenecking we, we talked about this in, in other podcasts, things in the timber laying down um, trees in a certain, basically that living fence row deal outside the food plot to guide them past your stand. I'd rather be sitting there knowing, okay, I might not see as many deer, but I'm going to have a chance. When the one steps out in the food plot, I'm going to have my chance at it. Yeah, I, I, I definitely would want to. And, and I think this is going to be this whole transformation of, of, I'm sitting here looking at the Hunt Terra map of the home base, and we have the family farm, which is going to be a big project in itself with some different techniques. But the home base, the Prairie Hollow property, has really some design features that are so almost, I, I hate to use this word, but almost perfect. Um, as far as the road system and the way we can set up the food plots, there's not going to be any huge food plots other than one that might be five acres, but the rest are going to be two acres or smaller. 
and uh, we're going to be able to maneuver around and, and have deer. Not only that, but they're in, in shapes to where the natural travel patterns has them walking through these food plots, these these two-acre food plots or acre-and-a-half, but they're still pretty kind of long and narrow. So there's a good chance when they're walking through it, going to a big destination field, which is in the, the basically the heartbeat of the farm, they're going to be walking by within range. Here's an, another thing to consider. As you're developing, developing a plan for a property, whether you're new to this farm or you've hunted a property for many, many years. So basically, you're able to gather intel over a couple-year period Use that to your advantage and say, okay, instead of just putting plots in the easiest places, consider how deer use that terrain. Consider how they're using fence rows to travel from A to B. Then put your food plots in the right places. And instead of just saying, oh, I've got a ridge top here, I've got an opening here, I've got one here, let me just do that and just kind of see what deer do. Whereas if you use your intel or if you say on a new property, I'm actually just going to hunt this for a year. I'm going to hunt this for two years. Before I really dive in, I'm going to learn this property, see how deer travel it, and then dive in and get it done and put it, these food plots, sanctuaries, these roads in the right places. That's that's an alternative. I like, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people want to see, you know, hey, I got a property. I want to just, I want to get after it and start doing work. But you can like we're talking about, go too fast and and you can have failures down the road. Or basically, you may not have the optimal success if you move the plot from 200 yards this way down the ridge. You could have had better success there. Yeah, and I, I'm going to, thinking back on one of your comments when you talked about the bottom field and it was like stacking them on top of each other. Yeah. I'm going to also bring up Another failure with food plots is putting them in the wrong location. Kind of going with that last comment. But mm-hmm. a lot of times, just because it's a bottom field, doesn't mean, and I, for for some reason, I, and I'm guilty of it myself, is like, oh, it's a bottom field. It's going to have great soil. I want to plant it. But then when you actually plant it and you try and hunt it, you realize the wind swirls it's way horrible. too much. And you're just like, you know, I loved, I would love to hunt it, but the wind swirls too much. That's a problem. So think about that, and that goes right with what Matt just talked about of observing um, before you actually lay out the work. So maybe you sit in that bottom and you check with a wind checker and or milkweed seeds and you're like, you know, that thing, the, the scent just goes everywhere in here. Maybe I shouldn't make it a food plot. And that kind of, that's definitely something you want to avoid um, is putting food plots in the wrong place. Um, that could be putting it in a place to where it may look like a great spot. It may already be an opening in the woods, mm-hmm. but if it's right next to your main drive going into your property, Mm-mm. it may not be a good idea. Or maybe you just plant it in something that's more pretty as far as native wildflowers and things like that. And you're like, oh, it looks really cool, but I don't really ever hunt there because it's so detrimental to um, my success. So that's all things to consider when you're putting in food plots. For sure. And we talked about them potentially being too big. Um, and then too small. Oh, that one's a bad one. Too small. I I guess I saw a picture today. And there's someone, um, and I guess I don't, I, I, before I say this, don't want it to seem like deterring people from doing these small micro plots because some people do kill deer in, in these places. Um, and they have a decent stand of vegetation. But those micro plots are most likely in the places that deer are already traveling. So 
the success or 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 the I guess advantage isn't that much bigger because in these small plots, basically, it, in, what I'm referring to is a picture I saw. Someone had taken um, a rake and raked out uh, a truck hood size. That's what uh, I or, see or a lot. little I mean, yeah, it was a truck or so. Or but there's just size. great big trees um, really surrounding this. It's going to be closed canopy. Um, and I, I, my, I guess my heart went out to him a little bit. It's like, you're do, you have like the right intention to try and get out there and work and do stuff. But I don't want him to have the, the mindset of, oh, this is going to be a lush field here. Yeah. The conditions don't allow for it. doesn't mean you don't work to improve those conditions so you can have better fields. But in that, in that basically idea, his, his, his pulling the cart before the horse wow. and you need to make that, you need to prep the site better. Um, so he was no- bringing out the horse in a in a little bitty pen is what it was. <laughs> yeah, it just it was it was a it had great he had great ambition. Yeah, but I applaud him for that. It wasn't uh, it was a lot of wasted time and money. Um, yeah, yeah, and, I, I, and I it could be saved. You know, he could save that could, time and you put could it put elsewhere. In a, a mock scrape and, mm-hmm. and a mineral site and do some edge feathering or some of these natural hedgerows in the timber. And and bottleneck the deer even better than having, having to spend small, all that money yeah, to, exactly. to buy seed that's really not going to provide enough forage like, to to do any good. Yeah, it's not even it's not even a tonnage you know thing. It's more of a am I going to have enough to grow here that's going to provide the attraction, or are they just going to simply continue to walk here because they're already walking here? Right? There's other techniques that we can use to better enhance that specific thirty yard radius. Yeah, and I think. It, we have so many topics on this one, but I'm, I'm thinking of the trendy things that's coming up. But a food mm-hmm. plot trendy one is the turkey foot and the wagon wheel. The wheel spokes. And yeah. it's just like, those are all great. And I think, okay, we got to have those. But a lot of times when I see those, I would rather just, you spread out all that food into a bigger area when you could just make a one acre, combine all that and make a one acre food plot and have a great inner uh, access trail going in and out. To where you can hunt the thing effectively to where if deer are coming to that food source, they're almost in range. Rather than have a big long wheel spoke, which may be it, it is great for gun hunting, but for bow hunting it's a little more difficult. And in specific regions too. And that's a whole other topic we're going to talk about. You know, understanding your region, what makes sense for you and your landscape. So we'll touch back on that wheel spoke idea yeah. in a second. But just like you said, it you can do more by not necessarily going overboard with that design layout because you saw it on social media. Uh, It's not going to make sense in every application. I think Logan, one of our Facebook followers, Mm -hmm. made that comment about when is too much management. Yeah. And that that could be a, I mean, that's a failure. It's also is going, okay, I'm trying to turn this into a wonderful place, but I'm overthinking. That's one mm-hmm. thing that I I think we all are guilty of, but some people well, more sure. than others is overthinking and going, "Okay, what can I do to make it better? Okay, I need to go and do this. I need to I need to hinge cut. I need to edge feather. I need to plant switchgrass. I need to plant food plots and plant soybeans and have corn and do this and this and this. By the time you all said and done, you just wasted a or you just spent a lot of money to still not have great success. So right, if it's not definitely a right plan. Yes, exactly. if there's no plan, no rhyme or reason, it's just chaos, then uh, you're you're not going to have the results that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Another one that kind of ties into um, the food plot placement is sanctuary. 
placement and sanctuary yeah. development. And that honestly should be very coincided with your road system because that's where you're going to be putting the, the um, most disturbance at throughout your property is that road system. You know, look and consider where you put in the road system and then from there develop your sanctuaries or your bedding area thickets in and around those areas. Don't begin to establish those areas and then consider, wait, how am I going to get from my cabin to that one food plot if I'm putting it here? Or now I got now I got to make another road around this when in reality you could have kept the same road initially, just move the sanctuary and then not had to make another road um, and, and just simplified things. So have a great road, great foundation, know where your disturbance is going to be, and then correlate that where your sanctuaries need to be and, and should we, be. When we're talking sanctuaries, we're referring to these bedding areas um, that could be in timber country, that could be bedding thickets, so a little bit of hinge cutting, a little bit of just flush cutting trees, and uh, in crop country that may be CRP, planting native grasses mm-hmm. and plum thickets and things like that. All that ties into sanctuary, an area that we are designating a bedding area and we're staying out of. Um, and another failure that would coincide with that would be if you're setting up a property and you're like, okay, I need to have plenty of sanctuaries and bedding or bedding areas on my farm. Um, I need, I want to make sure they're all on the south facing slope. And then you're like, okay, well, cold weather didn't come. It's hot, and my deer aren't on my farm. Why aren't they? Well, you don't have the bedding areas in the right. You don't have diversity with your bedding areas to where they have the ability to feel secure in an area that's cool on a north slope or east east-facing slope. So making sure you have plenty of diversity with your food plots and your bedding areas and pretty much all things on the property. As we as we again look back at this this Hunt Terror map, the home base property, we are talking about a recent food plot that was just getting put in to the property. And we immediately walked there and we're like, man, early season, this is going to be crazy good. Because right off the slope, there's the north slope that we know stays really cool um, based on the species that are growing there, larger white oaks, maples, there's even ferns, there's springs that come out of that hillside. It stays so much cooler, damper. So in that specific spot where that food plot is, we may even correlate the vegetation, the, the food plot species specifically to be better early season then later season, and then an area that's got closer. Did you mention the pond that we'll put in that edge oh, of that too? Yeah. Yep. So we'll have north slope, cooler temperatures um, for bedding. We'll have the early season wide oak trees. And then we'll also have a pond right there. So mm-hmm. they shouldn't have to venture far. Not far at all. And that, and during that time frame, deer don't get up and move that much. They don't They don't travel long distances typically because it's warmer. They've got their, their winter coats on. They're putting them on. So... We're thinking about that as we establish this. And then another one um, that's already put in too is in close proximity to a south-facing slope. And our access would be coming in from the north-northeast. And with that south-facing slope right there, we may correlate and put a grain or more late-season um, food plot species in that plot because it just makes sense. We're, we're basically matching the the forage that we want in this specific area because we know down the road, deer will be more concentrated here during late season and over in this area, early season. Yeah. 
And I will clarify, when whenever you just laid that out in my head and you said, okay, we're having a late season, I'm thinking cold northern winds, and you said we're coming from the south. With this setup, we'll be it's going to be great for west winds. Yes. So We're coming kind of like north, northeast-ish, looping around it. And this is a whole other podcast in itself. But when we talk, and we will cover this probably on our other podcast when we're discussing hunting strategies, but threading the needle this is something I've preached for a long time to where when you're flirting with that line of going, is this too risky? Is this not enough? Or is this too conservative or too liberal? But if you're flirting that line to where you think, boy, I could, if he stepped over there or he came out there, I'm totally busted. That's when some of your greatest success is because the deer have the wind in their favor. And so this this food plot is going to be dynamite for that northwest wind that's flirting that line, but still right in their wheelhouse. So that's something. Another thing when we're discussing food plot diversity is having the ability to have great um, late season sets with multiple wind directions. So you got anything else to add on that? I see you I think we're scanning the, ready scanning to the move notes on. over there. But yep. food plot failures, there's a long list. And actually, when we first discussed this food plot, we're, uh, this food plot topic or this podcast topic is like food plot failures was last week. But we could hold, we could do a whole nother podcast on food plot architecture failures as far as layouts mm-hmm. and where to put them and where not to put them. But we're trying to go a little bit bigger on this. So it's land management failures. But Food plot failures, there's all kinds of things that you need to avoid to have more success. Understanding your soil type and understanding your region, where you're at, what your ground is capable of, and what's not capable of, or what should be there and what should not be there. That is super important to having incredibly beneficial native vegetation for deer turkey quail to utilize if you were trying to let's say plant loblaw pines in pennsylvania probably not gonna do that well yeah there's better species for that or i think you were talking about it adam um you saw it one day uh, someone was talking about oak species to be able to plant um Somewhere in Kansas, no, they were they were wanting to plant east. Uh, they're wanting to plant eastern red cedar, and for more bedding in a prairie. Oh, which that, a was prairie okay. is appropriately managed with prescribed fire, and so you put something that doesn't take fire very well in a prairie. You're kind of basically taking a wad of money and sticking it out there and knowing that at some point it's going to burn. Hashtag land management fail. Yeah. Hashtag. I, so avoid <laughs> things like that. It's definitely appropriate to understand. This is where it really gets into fine-tuning your property and understanding your property, your area, your ecological history on that area. And this is one thing that I just I love to dissect. And as we're traveling the country, I, I look at these different places we go and I and I – try to figure out what it is, what was natural there, what was native there, the ecosystem, whether it was an oak woodland or oak savanna or it was a pine savanna and things like that to where once we understand that and we understand the soil type, we know that we can't try to put a, what is it you always say, a square, square peg, square peg in a round hole. It's just because that we're just, once again, wasting money and time and we want to be as efficient as possible and be as productive as possible. And so 
For example, the home base, which we're looking at on the Hunter map, is almost 98% all said and done, the whole farm is woodland. Now, there is a little bit of glade, and there's a little bit of forest down in the bottoms, but the timber country is 100% woodland. And by woodland, it's also it's upland woodland, and it's the soil. I forget what it is. I don't have it right on hand, but it's really gravelly. And it's not ideal for, let's say, walnut trees. It's not a place to where we go plant an entire grove, uh, plantation of walnut trees and think, oh, man. My grandchildren are going to love me. Yeah. You look at the walnut trees that grow naturally on these farms, and for the most part, none of them really make a good log. One out of every eight might make a okay log. Takes a long time, too. um, Understanding your your area and the soils will really help you long-term maximizing the potential. And that's why the power of the natives, the native species that deer, turkey, game, game species make a living off of. Basically your food plots are supplement to this forage, understanding that promoting that initially in your land management goals should be near the top. And it takes an understanding of your region, of your ground, of your soil type to then promote and make the best management decisions to get the most out of that ground. Yeah, I, I let's go a little bit more in depth on that and say, okay, it's an upland woodland and we start understanding the Ozark Highlands woodlands and what was naturally there. And it was a lot of little blue mm-hmm. stem and a lot of big blue stem Indian grass, um, echinacea, wildflowers, coneflowers, all kinds of different things. And so that's understanding that and going, okay, these were the species that were native to this area. There's still some in the seed bank, but if I'm going to plant some of these species and buy the seed, I'm going to get the things that are already adapted to this soil type to where I don't, this is the most wonderful thing about it. I shouldn't have to put in a, any fertilizer or lime to get these things really established because they're adapted to that soil already. So I can plant it and know that in five years I'm going to have this beautiful stand if it's managed correctly and prepped correctly to where it's there for a long time once I'm done. So that's one of the wonderful things about native plants, native species, and understanding your natural area, your natural ecosystem and trying to m- bring that back to to uh, 2018 or whenever it is you complete it to where you have this wonderful, wonderful ecosystem. Understanding your region, that is huge. I think because of the social media aspect of people sharing techniques mm. and people saying, hey, I tried that this you know, this week and what do you guys think? Which is awesome. I love that. I love that, that sharing aspect of things and people giving feedback and this and that and helping people along if it's positive encouragement. Um, but what you see or you what, what you may see on a hunting show or, or something is not always applicable in your area. And if you are in Alabama and you are on a pine plantation, um, which can be managed fantastically for wildlife, but I'm, and you, and you try and go out and hinge cut all these pines. Uh, like you're not. It's not going to be good. No, it's not going to be good at all. And 
there's a different technique that would be much better suited, just general thinning, prescribed fire. But if you saw that and said, oh gosh, I, I can go hinge cut. And then you try and implement that technique there in that setting, not, not going to turn out good. Or in the north, people say that cedar trees are great bedding. And, and oh, they're not that invasive up here. Well, they're a, a lot of times talking about white cedars. Atlantic white cedar. And the guys down here say, oh, cedar tree? I'm planting eastern red cedar then because I hear they're great bedding up in the north. Or they must be great here. And it's, it's totally different. So, Two different things. And, th- and that's why e- even um, I think it was a comment. Uh, Matt Ross did a, an article about invasive species, and there was a, a miscommunication, not on his part, but he said bush honeysuckle. And there's a native bush honeysuckle, but yeah. there's also a non-native bush honeysuckle. And there's confusion um, from someone who commented about what it was um, and, and, the, and the difference. So just in that, you've got to be very careful of what you're trying to implement. And we go back to that wagon wheel aspect of some food plots. If you're down in Texas and you have road systems, those long senderos, and you've got a, a juncture of multiple road systems, man, that might be great to plant a Junction? Those. Junction. Did I say juncture? You said juncture. Juncture. Junction. If you had junction and intersection of multiple roads that you can see long distances and you can plant it, man, that could be great. Or you are in this pine country um, and you've got these cleared whether it's fire breaks or thinned pines and you can see long ways and get sunlight to the ground and plant successfully, man, that might be a great aspect. It might be a great type of food plot because you might be in that timber country, um, that pine plantation. You can't just go in and thin and clear square blocks or or rectangles. That's what you have to work with. Um, That's applicable. But in other areas, let's just think of um, swamp country up in Wisconsin, you're not going to go and implement that same technique there. It's not going to yield the same results. So think about regional things before you start to implement them on your property because you're not going to have the same results. Mm-hmm. I think that that goes with prescribed fire, which is c- coming up. Um, when it comes to like Oklahoma and the prairie ecosystem where fire is a huge tool and you're like man that's wonderful and you're up in the northeast where it may not even be legal mm-hmm. in your state but you're like I want to do it you may get yourself in a lot of trouble so or just understand like, your region and the rules and regulations the California thing there's a big bad you know no no fires fires but in other places down south that's the way they manage pine plantations and they're two different beasts but regionally they're accepted differently yeah another huge Huge fail that we see a lot is the trendy fails. Um, when when you think of trending things, some of the ones that we've seen a lot lately, switchgrass monocultures, hinge cutting. Uh, what else do I have here? I'm kind of losing my Non-native nuts. perennials. Non-native perennials. This is one that will get me Autumn going. Olive. People want to plant these screens of miscanthus grass, and it's just like, oh, these are the greatest thing ever. And this is the problem with it. Now, the giant miscanthus grass that people plant is sterile or supposed to be sterile. So was the Bradford pear. It was supposed to be sterile too. If you say, yeah, I planted this giant miscanthus grass and boy, that almost always gets me tongue tied and you plant it and your, your friend says, boy, that's wonderful. That looks awesome. Where do I get that? What's the name of it? And you tell him the name of it. 
giant miscanthus, and it's the telephone game to where down the line it turns into miscanthus grass, not giant, and you start planting stuff that's not sterile, and now you have a big invade, invasive species on your hands. That's what yeah. the big problem with not planting non with planting non-native perennials like that. So keep that in mind. Um, when planting these trendy things, I mean, we've seen it a lot on Facebook lately, people trying these new things for screens. We've told you guys and shared some of our techniques for screens that are, are great screens, great buffers, but also great habitat for a smaller game species. So keep that in mind. Go check out some of the last podcasts if you want to find out which one we're talking about specifically in the, the diversity that we use. Another, So when talking about switchgrass monocultures, and this is... We'll just be straightforward with you and, and why there's we have a few issues with it. If you're planting just a 5-yard, 10-yard strip of switchgrass as a screen, great, wonderful. That'll, that'll work well. You could make it a little bit better by adding some diversity in there, but it's not that bad. But if you're planting like 20 acres of straight switchgrass, it can be better. I promise you, you can add some diversity and have a much more beneficial um, area. So adding things, trying to replicate nature in its best sense, and nature is always diversity, so replicating nature by using diversity, that's the key. So that's one of the big problems with planting monocultures. What was the last one? Hinge cutting. Hinge cutting. That's a huge trendy thing right now, and it's something that if you, you see some posts, you hear some people speak on hinge cutting, you think it's the greatest thing in the world, and you go out in your timber and you're like, all right, two acres set aside to hinge cut, and you hinge cut every tree, you're going to turn it into a biological desert because it's so thick a deer can't even get in there. The only thing that can get in there is rats and mice and snakes. So keep in mind that just because it's it sounds wonderful, you need to understand a little bit more and don't just dive right in and, and go and knock out a big chunk of timber and hinge cutting because you may have cost yourself a lot of money. Um, you may have created a huge eyesore, and you may have also created a massive area that nothing can get into so and, uh, understanding the trendy things and knowing how you can implement it on your place successfully and not just fail miserably with it another big one that we see pond failures yes um that can be location um if you're gonna put a pond in you know some people like them up close to a cabin that's great to you know introduce kids to fishing um less intrusion than the property awesome other ones you see for hunting they're just poorly designed and in poor locations. If you can't hunt it um, and you're trying to hunt over and you or you can't access it you know cleanly, it, it's a, it's in my book, it's a fail because it, I want deer to come out of that security feature, come to a pond and be able to hunt over it successfully. That's exactly right. I see you know, sometimes you see those get stuck like stashed away in a in back a corner or something yeah you're like oh they have a they have water right there close to bed. Well, let's put it out here so I can hunt over it. If and, I'm going to go through that effort or that money in developing a pond, constructing a pond with heavy equipment, man, I, I'm going to hunt over it. That's right. I want to take advantage of it. So, uh, Also, when you see pond failures, we put them in places sometimes where they're never going to be. On, here in the Ozarks, we see a lot of pond failures because we have so much rock, so much lead rock. stone, yeah. uh, limestone, limestone and, and rock outcroppings to where... It's really difficult in some places, and we're actually looking at one right now on the map of the uh, home base property where a pond was put in, and it wasn't constructed the right way. And so it's got this huge dam on the southeast side of it 
but it only fills up halfway. So it's another project we're going to attempt and, and work to get it completely filled up. But if it had been done the right the first time, we wouldn't have this issue. Right. So basically, you can have leaky ponds or just bad infrastructure, bad piping, um, tough to clean out, or you have a spillway that starts to erode the backside of a dam, and that's no bueno. Did you hear that? That was a can of worms. Oh, or you could have 20 acres of mud banks for EHD. Um, so that's... Yeah. Uh, yeah. So... We're not getting into that one. Yeah. No, avoid it. Avoid. Abort, abort, abort. Um, that's one big problem with bad construction of ponds is having a mud bank too. So um, anything else on pond failures? Nope. Okay. We're good there. Neglecting invasive species, another huge failure. So uh, one of the biggest, the, the start of that failure would be not being aware of the native uh, invasive species on your property. So if you're not aware of the invasive species that are kind of moving into your area and by the time you educate yourself on them, it's already too late, that that's going to be a big problem. And so that's something to keep in mind for us in our area. It's a great example. Not many people are aware of what bush honeysuckle is. But it's in the area. Mm-hmm. But it's at the very start to where there's just a few clumps that we've seen along the gravel road or along, yeah, along gravel roads along the highway to where we could go in right now and knock them out in the next year or two and really set it back. Or we could set back 10 years from now and know that it's going to be in a lot more places. So A lot more places. Understand, and you can find this out by calling your whoever your state agency is and finding out kind of what some of the things are in their area. Regionally, it, there's hotbeds for, for yes. stuff. When I was back east, stilt grass, garlic mustard, uh, porcelain berry, bamboo. Uh, oh gosh, I know I'm missing quite a few others. But those were just key ones we hit all the time, and they're just everywhere. But overlooked because now they're, they're so common, it's like, oh, we cannot, we cannot neglect them. That's a big failure. I don't want to get distracted here, but do you see these pinches? I've never noticed them right oh, up yeah. here yeah. on this on the Hunter map. We're just looking at the topo overlay, and it's just massive saddles. But anyway, not to get distracted. Um, what That pretty well wraps up. Invasive species, are, the biggest thing you can do is educate yourself on what the invasives are in your area and train your eye to spot them. And as you're working your property over the years, just make sure you don't find them. Here, and if here's you a, do, you go and take care of them. Here's another one. You find a little colony or a little bit of an outbreak of, of some invasives, you treat it one year and never go back. You have to follow up that treatment because you can't get every single stem or sprout every single time the first time, the first go around. Go back the next growing season, hit it again, go back follow up you might only have two sprouts the third year hit them and then you're good knock them out you're not Land gonna get management it all done it's not one one hit wonder it's it's lifelong so tree heaven that's another big one so yeah. understand those train your eye keep your eyes peeled to where they don't get a stronghold on your property next fire fails yeah fire is definitely a it's a great tool uh, across most of the country great management tool very very cost effective but one of the biggest issues with fire would be the smoky the bear campaign and and wildfires there is a big difference between a wildfire and a prescribed fire um, educating yourself getting the appropriate training 
and understanding fire to where you know you can implement it on your farm and not have major issues as far as you could go in and say, boy, prescribed fire is great and rip a head fire up through some timber and kill some 200-year-old white oak trees or scar them up to where there's no value in it or, or you just completely kill it. Um, that's going to be a big issue and a big fail that's going to be felt for generations. So prescribed fire is an awesome tool, but it can be very problematic. Use it, use it wisely. So making sure you're trained and understand it and, and are following the appropriate fire weather um, so you don't damage your trees or burn your neighbor's farm down. <laughs> so I say that, uh, I don't know why I chuckled when I said that, but just make sure that you're very aware of, of the issues that can happen with Good fire all lines. your stuff. Yeah. I think I said it in one of the very first ones because we're pretty well wrapping up. or getting ready to hit the would you rathers, but... Um, Think about this land management and the fails and all the benefits and everything that goes on with it and and understand and look at it every time you do something and go, okay, what is the lasting effect of this? What is it going to be once I'm done with this work? How long is it going to be here? How long is it going to benefit this? How long do I need to return and do it again? And what is my footprint going to be? This is one of the things that we talked about on the value to food plots is if you planted a food plot and two years later you never return, it's gone pretty quickly. But if you put in a big TSI project and 50 years you return, there's probably still going to be the effects of your TSI project on that timber. So there's management that can be done that's going to be felt for generations. Um, and there's other things that are going to be done that only going to last for a couple of growing seasons. So understand that before you ever do anything so you know if you're if you're doing something that's probably let's say you're doing a two acre hinge cut area and you say boy this is awesome right now but in 10 years are you still going to want to see that right it may be a nasty mess and you're like man that was stupid so make sure you know the the good and the bad with everything you do for sure <clears throat> you ready for this would you rather mine's, sure. mine's gonna be pretty easy i, I but, don't even have one right now, <laughs> well so. i didn't until i looked down I was like oh yeah would you rather let me think real quick it's a correlate here with with what we're doing um and that is would you rather buy a farm that has been hunting has a road system established folks were coming in they had already done some food plot work um and have some some things established you know it's going to need some changing but really there's a pretty decent base of of what's already there but tweaking it will would be involved would you rather come into a farm and have that situation or have a clean slate like no roads very inaccessible start from scratch bottom of the level which one the question would be are they in the same neighborhood though yeah yeah okay uh, equal opportunity I want, I want the clean slate clean slate yeah start from the ground up Start from the ground. Start off from the bottom, I, now we're here. I like the challenge of going from here to there and, and the transformation of, of it once looked like this and now it looks like this. Um, and so with a clean slate, I can just say, when I got here, it looked like this. There was nothing done, and I turned it into that. And to me, this story is just as much fun as anything else. Mm-hmm. So, uh, would you rather, Matt... Have a 
let me be careful here and think about this because I'm I'm gonna say something that's like a terrible would you rather most likely because oh goody like, um, I had no am time I to screwed think either way this. yeah pretty much <laughs> would you rather have a tractor forty horse tractor four wheel drive chug and a look, a, chug just a, look. a couple of little implements like a cultipacker and and a bush hog or would you rather have a UTV with all the toys? tractor yeah me too <laughs> but there's I think there's some the diesel UT- therapy that i just i grew up doing i just i love that tractor time and then just the accessibility of of having that tractor it, it's going to work it's going to do more for me you can get a five foot drill and yeah still i can pull, pull it behind like i can get a front end loader i can do that attachment i can use it for the farm yeah, I'm just going with tractor. Yeah, I, I and I say that because there's a lot of guys using UTVs now, mm-hmm. like four wheelers. Yeah, um, and if, they're doing some great stuff. If that's all the but, means that I have, oh yeah, I definitely use that. But a tractor, especially if it's four wheel drive, you can. I mean, we've said this over and over and over that we really the ideal situation is a no till drill for planting a food plot. Mm-hmm. And so with the tractor, I'm already one step closer to that. I'm one timber harvest away or one thing away mm-hmm. from one tax return away from buying a no-till drill and doing yeah. it. So um, that's definitely that's definitely my thoughts as well. So anyway, um, that pretty well wraps us up this week. If you got something else, I'm almost scared to ask. I'm I'm just saying if you're in the process of buying a property or or really beginning to work on it, take notes on this podcast. Consider it. Consider all the aspects to it. Um, if you don't have a plan, we'd like to help you out. You're um, making me do all the shameless plugs. By the way, Matt and I are also real estate agents. Oh yeah, yeah. So we can help you out. We can help you find the, the right farm. piece too. Yeah, so. for sure. Um, but just know ahead of time. Don't rush into it. Um, think about it. There's a process. There's a foundation. Build it up from there. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. Let's wrap this up. Get out of my house. Let's go turkey hunting. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there and we're answering on the podcast. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God?